We are back in Ephesians. We're in the last part of the second chapter, verses 11 to 18. Uh, Give attention as we read and hear this, the Word of God. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. Uh, In the first chapter of Ephesians, we saw that God is declaring his election of his people in Christ, and there is a prayer that we might know God and his power intimately and deeply and really. Now, in chapter 2, there are two evidences of that power. Was it two, maybe even three weeks ago, we saw that one of the evidences is that God is bringing out of death life, and by grace through faith works that make a people who are display cases of His grace, laser light shows of His grace, firework displays to His world. Now in the second chapter, we have a second evidence of His power, and apparently we are about the task not only of sharing Christ with the world to make new creations out of individuals, but those individuals are to come together in life together, in a body together in the church. Now, this is perhaps a bit of a harder sell. The best witnesses for Christ are people, and we are sadly also sometimes the best witnesses against Him. Many people have been let down. Many people have been hurt by the church. My father used to say to me that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, and what he got was the church. But Paul is giving us a picture of the work, what the church ought to be and what the church should be and what the church can be and regularly approximates in important ways. Paul gives us a picture of the church that is so vivid that it is meant to draw and ignite our hearts. We're not only about the task of helping people find Christ, we're about what Jesus, what, what Josue, rather, has us sing about so regularly building the church. The church is supposed to be not just an aggregation of people, but an evidence of God's power. 
The church is to be a place where people who can't get along get along. As you know, as we've said several times even already this morning, the Southern Baptist Convention met in Anaheim, California last week. One friend joked about the Southern Baptist Convention this way. He said it is what happens when a tent revival is held at a flea market during a Baptist business meeting with dinner on the grounds. And to that, I might add, all at a family reunion. This year, Southern Baptists got together again in what is the largest deliberative body in the world. And when that kind of thing comes together at that size, one might expect, as we do in families, that there are dysfunctional members and crazy uncles and aunts. And this year, there were several important issues to consider and address together, and I think we did so well at least as well as could be expected, but even better than that. Progress was made and common cause was felt, and I was very encouraged. And I also thought we lived out in some measurable measure what Paul is talking about in this text. The chapter tells us how this impossible community of disparate people of the church is brought together and made one. The gospel brings people who were divided together, Republicans and Democrats, rich and poor, male and female, people of color and people without color. We are all lost. And we are all hostile towards God. But the text promises, the text proclaims that the blood of Christ gives us the same position, the same legal standing. It brings us together. The text also speaks about those who are far and those who are near. I was raised in Washington, D.C., and about this time, every summer, we had visitors uh, come to town, and we spent time as a family and with our visitors at all the museums that flanked the mall. I look forward to that time. I spent days, if not weeks, every summer just just touring, going through museum after museum after museum. Many of the sights and sounds that filled my young senses were collections of art and statuary and architecture from different civilizations, uh, both horizontally and vertically through time, Egyptian, Roman, Greek, Chinese, African, Islamic. They all hold amazing artifacts that witness to the creativity and artistry of the human spirit. And as a young Christian and taking my faith uh, as seriously as as I could as a young person, which was pretty serious for me, I wondered that all these artifacts of beauty and of creativity could be made by civilizations without their knowing Christ. What could be made of that? Well, Ephesians 2 speaks to that. He reflects on the fact that all of these great civilizations, Roman and Greek, Egyptian, Aztecs, Babylonian, contemporary inland empires, if that is a phrase, all of these, he lumps them together as the uncircumcised, as those who are separate and far away from God. Listen to verse 11, therefore... Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called on circumcised, remember that at that time 
you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. What is Paul saying about these great civilizations, Romans, Egyptians, Chinese, contemporary inland empires? It was not that these were uncivilized barbarians. It, he was not saying that they had no culture, that they were crude or unsophisticated. Of course not. What he does say is that all these people, no matter how accomplished, no matter how beautiful their civilizations were, were strangers to the covenant and without hope. A covenant is a binding contract. A covenant is a contract which reduces some of your freedoms so that you can get access to something that is valuable to you. That is what is done every time a marriage covenant is entered. When God enters into a covenant with David and Abraham, he says, I want you to swear allegiance to me, to be obedient to me. I want you to give evidence of your covenant love. And if you do, you will have access to me. Paul isn't saying that without the covenant, you can't be creative or brilliant or great. God has given to all humanity his image. And so we should not be surprised that outside of the church, outside of Christian faith, Human life is capable of enormous creativity and beauty and exercise because we are, we are all God's children, maybe not adopted sons and daughters, but we are all image bearers of the living God. In many ways, Greeks and Romans and Egyptians had greater civilizations than people who were the covenant of the promise. Uh, as a young man, I was on an archaeological dig in Tel Gezer, it was uh, sort of halfway between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. It was mentioned six times in the Bible. It was uh, one of the gifts to Solomon in one of his marriages. And, uh, it was built there because you could see an invading army for three days. It but had, had good protection that way. But uh, we would unearth, uh, not every shovel fill, but we would regularly unearth artifacts or at least broken potsherds of, of former civilizations. And um, I meant to bring one, I just forgot to put it in my car this morning, but I have a 4 BC earthen vessel. It's absolutely as plain and simple, and fairly uninteresting except for its age as you could imagine. And that was the product of Hebrew culture and civilization at that time. And whenever we brought up we would compare it. Uh, the archaeologists would have things to, uh, of, of Greek civilization at that time. The, the clay was much finer, and there were brushstrokes. No, no ornament, or ornamentation on the Hebrew pottery, but on the Greek pottery, beautiful brushstrokes and, uh, and figures. At the same time, Greek civilization was capable of more aesthetic beauty, and yet they were not heirs of the promise. And the text says, consequently, cultures like that are without hope in the world. The American poet William Wordsworth said that he thought all of his poetry, and I think by extension, don't speak in absolutes, but I will say perhaps all art at base 
that is not an heir of the covenant of promise is, and here's the quote from Wordsworth, listening to the still sadness of humanity. I think Wordsworth was right. If you look at the Roman and Greek gods, there was always fighting going on, but the idea that there is any climax to history, that history is moving somewhere and accomplishing something, that history was held was absolutely absent. Without knowing Christ, without being heirs of the covenant of promise, the world is without hope. Without the God of history, the God of the Bible, the God of the covenant, there's no hope. If you want hope, if you want to know that your future is moving somewhere and held by something, you need to know the God of the Bible. He says to us, I'm in charge of history. I'm holding it. I'm bringing history to a, a consummation. And when history comes to its end, when your life comes to an end, if you know me, I will right every wrong and correct every broken piece. I will bring all this to a head and on that day, all those who are in covenant with me will be received and will be vindicated and will be welcomed at my right hand. That is hope. Then the text Christ is, tells us that all this is made possible, that Christ breaks down the walls of partition because he is our peace. The logo of the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim said this very thing. I don't think, I know, I have never been to a convention where I was more moved by or more impressed by, um, by the logo of the convention. I expected to walk up, I was anticipating, welcome to the Southern Baptist Convention. This is where Southern Baptists meet and fight. <laughs> But instead, there, there, you, very, there's a very pale print down at the bottom, uh, SBC. But what you saw with this, this dominant and beautiful California aqua blue letters, the name Jesus. And down below it, it was said, the center of it all. And those words, this huge name and, and this, the subtext, which was still very visible. Jesus, the center of it all, was this circle. And I didn't notice it immediately, God forgive me, but as I looked at it, the circle was made out of the bottom half was a crown of thorns, and the top half was a crown of victory. And this logo was on display almost everywhere you went. It was huge on the outside. It was big enough to be seen everywhere. Everywhere I went was greeted by this Logo, Jesus, the center of it all, the promise of the covenant, the one who is our peace, the one who brings us together, who tears down the wall of partitions. That's good news, and that is hope. Jesus is our advocate, our peace, our mediator, our brother, our king. When I, when I first came to California, which is 35 years ago, I went to an, uh, a local art convocation, and I bought a print. For some reason, I don't know, my wife didn't like it, so we, we, over the years we've gotten rid of it, but I had it framed and kept it in my office for quite a few years. I, it was kind of sentimental religious art. It, even I don't like sentimental religious art, but I like this. 
It was the picture of a huge, if you can picture a Gothic door, wood door, huge with an arch at the top, and was cracked open a little. And so from floor to ceiling, you could see something down at the bottom. This is what made it kind of um, sentimental, was this little child. And he was opening the door and looking in. But what I loved about it is the only thing you saw inside was this flames, fire everywhere. Um, Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and mystic, who uh, we know at a time in his life he had a dramatic deepening of his faith. And after his death in his journal, it was discovered, that we, we know the moment, that, that the time in which his life deepened. And it says November 19, I didn't look up the date, let's say it's 1693. But the date is there. And then there's one word, well, there, there's a time. It says from 12 p.m. to 2 a.m. And then one word. Fire. As if the only description he could make to describe his access with the living God was fire. That's what I loved about that picture and that portrait. Charles Spurgeon wrote in a sermon that he delivered on the particle sun. He said, the love of God has occasionally been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight. We might have died if he had not shielded me from his love and glory. I could not endure anymore. Martin Luther said that we are to think of God as a consuming fire, and if you try to go directly into that, you will be burned alive. The only access, the only way you can go into the fire that is God is through Christ. Every other door you try is a consuming fire unless you come through Jesus. And if you just think about the meaning of that, unless you think of the meaning of the access, if you go on if you go to the Father through and tomorrow, you will be begin to through Christ, you will be able to experience that excess. Now, by contrast, Paul is writing about hope and declaring hope and praying that that hope might be on display and that it might be on display in the way God builds his life together. Three weeks ago, I've already alluded, we talked about we are God's poetry, his artistry, his laser light show, his display cases. As we, as we live with works which come through faith, which are impelled by his grace, grace through faith to works. Now that same power, that same display case is to be seen in the church and his life together and people who don't naturally belong together, getting along, living together because they have been united and brought together by Christ who is their peace. The church is where there is a bond of Christ that unites people and that bond transcends cultural differences and gender differences and language differences and racial differences and economic differences. The church has been likened to a set of instruments that is called together around the tuning fork, which is Christ, all playing and living in harmony because we are focused on him and with him. There's a unity that the world cannot understand and that has been longed for for centuries. 
So I started this sermon by saying summers are times I spent a lot of time in museums. And I recall not a time in my Washington DC museums where I've spent most of my time, but in the Metropolitan Museum in New York, they have a wing that is dedicated to uh, David Rockefeller, who a fourth generation Rockefellian, uh, graduate of Harvard University, Phillips Exeter Academy, the best school is just 23. I don't know what his uh, religious life was, but he became fascinated by primitive art and he went to Papua New Guinea at 23 and started a collection, you could see it there in the, in the wing of the Metropolitan Museum, a whole wing has been built to that. But he was urged, he went out with a, he was 23 with a 29 year old Dutch uh, female anthropologist, they went out on a 40 foot boat and uh, the currents were a bit heavy, they, they urged him not to go, but he went out and the boat capsized and uh, the guys that were with him swam off and said, we'll bring help. 24 hours later, help hadn't come. And so as it turns out, foolishly, hindsight is 20-20, isn't it? He said, I think I can swim to the shore. He did after 24 hours, and he was, he's never heard from or seen again. That was in 1958, 1961, uh, 1969, rather. Uh, that was in 1961. And 69... A, a journalist went and uh, investigated what might have happened to him. They, they thought, well, maybe he drowned, maybe he was taken by crocodiles, but almost certainly he was uh, the subject of a revenge killing by the Marte tribe who were uh, completely ex uh, insulated from modern culture. And in 1958, it was still under a Dutch protectorate, some White Dutch officials had gone there and, 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 and trying to teach the tribal people that we, some of the practices that you're used to are unacceptable. Uh, things got out of control and they killed five of the tribesmen. Uh, turns out five of the most important tribesmen. And I, I learned a little about that this week. We talk about cannibals and people that, there's kind of rationale that there can be that it's often revenge killings or protection killings for other tribes and other people. And so when another, although it was three years later, when another white man was found, um, there needed to be a revenge killing to, to uh, assuage the spirits of their ancestors uh, that had been taken. And uh, so David Rockefeller at the age of 23 was never heard from again and almost surely uh, he was killed and, and uh, eaten after he was killed and all of his organs uh, taken. Read about that story and continue to look at the art there in the Metropolitan Museum and it is striking, it's stirring, it's frightening. It all has to do with keeping the gods at bay and keeping powers at bay and assuaging spirits. It, it's, it's artistry that is creative and strong and troubling and terrifying, written by a people without hope, without Christ, where we all live. And then as I made my way through that museum, I was looking at it fairly carefully, I found a, just a small plaque. You can go online and read a whole lot more about this, but just a small plaque. Metropolitan Museum wasn't going to proclaim this. Not their interest. But there was a small plaque. And it said, at this day, at this time, 
almost all of the peoples of Papua New Guinea have become Christian. They are no longer far off, but near. They are now heirs of the covenant of promise. They are people with hope. They can still make artistry that is brilliant and creative and colorful and strong, but it doesn't have to be fearful. They don't have to kill other spirits to assuage the evil spirits. That's why people from this church are going to countries who are far and, and near to bring the covenant of the promise that the hope of Christ might be carried to people who are far and near. The peace of Christ is available today. It is the power that takes people who want nothing to do with God, who are selfish, as we all are, who have no interest in Christianity and turns them into people who love God and want to serve other people. And there is no power that can withstand Christ, no enemy that can defeat him, no influence that can match him, no evil that can dissuade him, no possible antagonist that can derail him, no foe that can stand against him, no other name that can oppose him. This power which brings the dead to life is the power by which Christ now rules and reigns and by which he brings together those who are far and near and builds his church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that on this Father's Day that you have adopted us into your family through Jesus Christ. You made Jesus our sin on the cross. You did that so that you could be with us and we could be with you. Father, we realize the audacity of coming to you. We realize that you should wipe us out for even having the audacity to speak to you. We know, Father, it is only through Jesus Christ that we have access. We realize that we can only come to you through him. We know that we have no right on our own to come to you, but Jesus Christ is our peace, so we can, we can come into the consuming fire of your love and not be burned. Father, we know that we can come near to you only through the blood of Christ, only by renewing our covenant with you. Can we have a covenant of hope? Father, we want a sense of your presence in our midst this day, a sense of your presence every day, and a sense of your love. And we thank you that that has been made available to us through our Savior and Lord Christ, who is your Son and our peace, and in whose name we pray. Amen. And amen.